The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Let's read starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Common passage. Uh, in 2014, we love this passage so much that we spent 11 weeks preaching through these 12 verses. It accounted for about seven hours of preaching, and today I'm going to do it in 30 minutes. Chapters 5 to 7 are commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the words of Christ. It's a sermon that he gives to the crowds, a sermon that he gives to his gathered disciples, uh, the intimate few that are, that are with him uh, in portions of this. If you have a red-letter Bible, right where we started, uh, it's red, and then it keeps flipping several pages, and it's more and more red. Even, even crying babies could not interrupt Jesus in this sermon. And this is what that means. He's preaching to them. He is teaching them. And it's already, this is an odd sermon that I'm going to give today. It's a little odd because it is a sermon of a sermon. It's a picture of a picture, a copy of a, of a copy. And so part of me feels like, why don't we just read Jesus' sermon and pray and then sing and, and call it a day? But, you know, the church pays me, uh, so um, I got I to gotta do this. I got to dig in. And, and, it's, and it's really good. I'm excited to really uh, to see what is in here for, this, for us. It's the start of the sermon, uh, commonly called the Beatitudes. It's Latin for uh, blessedness. And each of these short phrases starts with the word blessed. Blessed are those who. And what Jesus aims to show us is that in these short phrases is that there's a distinguishing mark of a true follower of Jesus. There's distinguishing marks of disciples of Christ. And instead of being identified by race or gender or social status, there are distinguishing marks by which all citizens of God's kingdom are recognized. And notice that we're not talking about, you know, Jesus fish on the car. We're talking about spiritual DNA. How do I know that you belong to the kingdom of heaven? How do I know that you belong to Jesus, that you follow him? And so here, these beatitudes are the DNA of genuine spiritual rebirth. Someone who is born again. They're not a description of, of eight uh, virtues or eight different kinds of virtuous people, but they're describing the one person, the one person who follows Christ and is in his kingdom. And I couldn't help but 
but my ears uh, perk up and, and, and at, at, during the inauguration, one of the pastors was praying and he opened his Bible and he opened to Matthew chapter 5 and he began to read. And he began to read this passage, but he changed the words, if you didn't, maybe you noticed. He changed the words to this scripture to fit his own interpretation of what they might mean. And he described the virtuous person whom God favors. He said, God blesses those who are poor in spirit. God blesses those who mourn. God blesses the merciful. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so he is describing, in his own words, he's describing that these are virtues, that if we pursue these virtues, we will find blessing from God. But that's not what this passage says. The sermon goes far beyond just a collection of, of virtues or moral precepts. They're not statements describing the kind of person whom God loves or who comes into God's blessing. Rather, they're a description of a person who has been blessed by God. A description of a person who has come to find themselves in the favor of God already. A better translation of the word blessed, uh, the Greek word uh, makarios, could be one of fortune. Uh, fortunate are those, or even happy are those. It introduces the kind of person that we should congratulate because of something that is going on in their life. Not for what they have done, but something that has come to them, a favor that they have found from God. Something that would make us say, congratulations. Congratulations that this has come to you. And so we want to uh, give a, give a th I want to give a 30,000 foot view of the Beatitudes, these principles of the Beatitudes, in order to get this through in just one sermon. Uh, and here's the first one. Here's the first 30,000 foot view uh, principle is that there is a counterintuitive beauty in following Jesus found in the Beatitudes. We use the word blessed all the time. We use it a lot in Christian circles and even in secular circles. We use the word blessed. I'm so blessed. We know what it means. It, I'm celebrating, you know, celebrating. You say, I'm, I celebrate my 20th anniversary. So I'm so blessed. God has blessed me. The idea of being blessed is common principle in the Christian life. But what does it really mean to be blessed? What does it mean that God's blessing has come to us? If you were to scan through someone's um, social media posts or Instagram posts and, ask, and I asked you, well, look, let's look at all these pictures, how, what would it look like to be a blessed person? Let's point out some pictures of what, it, what demonstrates a blessed life. In fact, why don't we do that now? I have some of your photos on... No, I, I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> Not a bad idea, though. If we were to scan through and look through the pictures that people post, what would we say, wow, they are blessed? What would you stop on and point out that would be a picture of someone worthy of congratulations? You know, a picture of a, consider these, a picture maybe of a beautiful, smiling child. Hashtag blessed. A spacious new house that you just purchased. Hashtag blessed. Summer trips to the beach. A picture of a, a spouse with a very symmetrical face. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. That's the mark of beauty. You didn't know that, right? The worldview of this culture is that you have a blessed life if you have a life like that. And it's usually revolved around money, influence, power, physical beauty, all of these things. You might spot pictures and say, this is what it means to be a blessed 
person if you have these things. The blessed life is the prolific life. You know what prolific means? It means to produce. The blessed life is the person who is able in their life to produce things. A family, a career, a healthy bank account. You're blessed if you're doing something with your life. You're having, you're creating, you're producing, you are advancing. That is what our culture says is the blessed life. And even more so, an outward sign of, of, uh, of success, if you have all these things, if you live a prolific life, then this is an endorsement of God's blessing. Well, God must be blessing you because you have all of these things. Congratulations. You know, no one takes a picture of a smoking car on the side of the road with a blown out tire and says, this happened to me today on the way to work. Hashtag blessed. Got home from a long day at work today and this was waiting for me on the dinner table. Hashtag blessed. And it was like a tuna fish sandwich and some like pretzels. And not, not, the, not the white tuna, like the red canned tuna. What you don't hear much at all is is how you can be poor and blessed, uh, how you can be hungry and blessed, how you can be persecuted and blessed. And all these things in life we, that we call blessings, are, are they actual blessings? And all the things that we call curses in life, are they actual curses? We might find that Christ shows us the things that we actually call curses are meant to be blessings, and the things that we see as blessings might not be a blessing at all. Are you poor in spirit? God would say, congratulations. Are you, do you mourn for your sin? God would say, you're fortunate. Are you gentle and meek? Are, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? God would say, these are the things that I love. These are the things that, that are favorable. These are the things that, that are worthy of, of congratulations. And there's a, a beauty to following Jesus that is so counterintuitive that the Beatitudes confront us with. That the only thing you need is need. The first four of these Beatitudes, they're, they're counterintuitive. They, we don't want to have that. We don't see that as happiness. We don't see that as blessing. I don't want to be mourning. I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't want to be gentle or meek or hunger. I don't want to be thirsty. The underlying foundation of following Jesus is, is spiritual poverty. How do I know? Spiritual poverty is this, it's having a sense of, of absolute dependency on God, where we finally admit to God and to ourselves that my life is not manageable, that I, I cannot manage my life to the point of, of avoiding the chaos and the dysfunction. We have to come to a point in our life where we say, I'm not righteous before God. I cannot do this on my own. It is the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 51 that, that we read this morning where he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Where he says, I know my sin and it bears heavy on my heart. Help me. It's the cry of the prodigal son in, in Luke chapter 15 where he takes his father's inheritance and he, he runs off from his home country to a foreign place and, and, and squanders his wealth and he wastes all his wealth and he finds himself in the in the waste of pigs and a pigsty, and in his 
In his lowliness, he cries out and says, I will go back to my father and repent to him. And I am not worthy to be called his son, but I would be happy to be his servant. That's bankruptcy. That's spiritual poverty. It is a plea of a bankrupt spirit because he knows that he has nothing to boast in. Have you come to the end of of your ability to please God and and you are ready to say, God, I can't do it anymore. Help me. God says to us, congratulations. You're fortunate. Because this is the foundation of a relationship with following, of following Jesus. The Bible tells us that every single one of us are unrighteous before God and therefore spiritually bankrupt with no ability to pay our way into an honest relationship with God. And this ought to make us very shy when it comes to our achievements. You and I cannot know the beauty of the kingdom of God unless we know and unless we embrace how truly needy we are. Here's the difference between a Christian and, and a moralist. A, a moralist person believes that they can get better on their own, that they can be in God's favor on their own, that they can become more pleasing to God through working on their sin. And a Christian repents not only of the wrong that they do, but they also repent of all the good that they do in an attempt to find favor from God. A moralist says, I may be bad, but at least I'm good in these areas. A Christian says, even the good that I do are filthy before God. I depend wholly and completely on Jesus and all that he has done for me. See, the Beatitudes are are a tremendous test for us. That's what we should see right off the bat. Is there a test for us? Are we building our life on the gospel? Or are we building it on something else? Are we building it on on the, the idea of being a person who is not poor or broken down, but a person who is powerful and confident and prolific and well-off? Do we see that as the life that God favors, that we, that we go to church, that we read our Bible often, that we are charitable in all that we do? You say, God, this must account for something. At least I may be struggling in areas, but at least I have that to my credit. It's an attitude of God's people to be empty before Him. But the good thing is that our that these, this character, this, this person that finds themselves in the favor of God is, does not stay empty. This person actually uh, gets reward and finds favor with God. And that's the second big principle in the Beatitudes, is the second half of all of these Beatitudes, is that there's a certainty of reward in following Jesus. The rewards of following Jesus are spelled out in the second half of each verse. The tenses of these are mostly future, giving us an indication that the best The best for a follower of Jesus is yet to come and not present. I'm a foodie. Um, What this means is that for me, food is much more than functional. I don't eat primarily to be alive. I eat because I like the way it looks and the way it feels, the way it makes me feel emotionally. You You may be thinking, dude, I totally get it. Or you're thinking, you need therapy. Uh, you may be right on both of those fronts. Here is the great promise. Whatever we agree on, we agree that food is important. Whatever we agree, we agree that it is important for us. And Jesus taps into this everyday necessity to make a promise to us. He says, you will be satisfied. 
in following me, you will be satisfied. Your cravings will be met. There is a promise, a certainty of reward in Christ. You will be satisfied. I'm going on, out on a limb here to say that I don't think anyone in this room uh, has likely ever been starving and truly hungry the way that hunger is described in Scripture. The pain that you feel uh, after a time has gone by when you haven't eaten, uh, doctors actually say that's not hunger. We call them hunger pains, but, the, but doctors actually say this isn't hunger pains. It's actually your body going through withdrawal. Uh, it is pain of your stomach contracting because uh, of, of they're going through withdrawal from a lack of sugar infusion because we, on a normal basis, overconsume. We're constantly filling ourselves and consuming ourselves with food that when we stop, our stomach hurts and says, I need more, but we really don't need more. You see, doctors say that true hunger isn't painful. Instead, hunger manifests itself not in pain, but in intense craving, craving and thirst, desire, appetite for something, not pain. Many of us will live uh, in this life with a perspective that what happens in this life is all that matters. What happens in this life is all that matters. Uh, there's a certainty of reward when we follow Jesus, and much of that joy comes later. There's a top hit song out right now called Scars to Your Beautiful. Um, it's very catchy. I've been singing it all morning, and I forced myself to stop. It speaks to an important reality uh, that many people find themselves in, the reality of pain and isolation and loneliness and rejection that many face. And the hope in this song is that it turns uh, to hope that is found in the now and in the self-love, self-help, believe in yourself. The lyric is this, there's no better you than the you that you are. There's no better life than the life that you're living. What a mean thing to say. Because what Jesus says in these Beatitudes is that you don't have the power to change, but you can go on and still be satisfied. You don't have the power to change. There, your best life is not now. There is better to come. There is a better you that I desire to form in you. The way that you go about your day-to-day, -day, the way you make decisions, the way you treat others, the way you work in your job, the way you raise your children. Many of us are living to pursue the best that we can right now without a perspective on God's promised certainty of reward later by following Him. If your stability in your life depends on what happens around you throughout your day, if your joy, if your contentment fluctuates throughout your day a hundred times because of what happens to you in your life, then much of what Jesus will say here in the Beatitudes and everywhere else will be very difficult for you. Be very difficult to hear, very difficult to swallow, because you can't see beyond your trouble. You can't see beyond your nose. Do you delight in the riches of heaven more than the riches of this world? Do you trust more in the, the certain reward of Christ that is yet to come more than you do for the the the, the instant gratification that is available to you today. Friedrich Nietzsche was a, an early 19th century German philosopher, and 
his ideas have shaped much of our uh, Western culture and our values today. He has had a tremendous influence on how we think about these things. And he said this about good. He said, good is all that heightens the feeling of power, the will of power, power itself in man. And bad is all that proceeds from weakness. Weakness is for losers. Greatness is for winners. Poverty is for losers. Prosperity is for winners. Sacrifice is for losers. Dominance is for winners. These are the idols of today. These are the idols of our world. And Jesus gives us this simple assurance in the Beatitudes, and it's simply this. Following Jesus will never be in vain. Do you believe that? In the face of difficulty, in the face of conflict, in the face of, of rejection or fear of rejection, do you believe that following Jesus and trusting in Him will never be in vain? It'll always be better. What would your life look like today? How would it look different if you believed that? Jesus, I will follow you no matter what. My life is yours. Believing that there's a certainty of reward. You will never be put to shame. Even when it leads you to, to not being famous, to not being recognized, to not being powerful, even if it leads you to not being recognized or noticed by others, would you follow him anyway? What, what is it that you and I might be truly afraid of that is keeping you and I from living a life like this? It says, Jesus, I will not follow you casually, but I will follow you with complete dependence with complete loyalty to you, to your words, and your commands to me. I think I know what it is. It's that you and I are afraid that Jesus can't be trusted. There's something in the back of our minds, and I know it's been in mine from time to time, there's something in the back of my mind that says, but what if it doesn't happen the way you say it might? What if it doesn't happen the way you say it will? What if you're not there on the other side when I need you the most? What if my biggest fears come true, that I am alone and I am rejected and there is not reward? Makes me afraid. Makes me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel insecure about following Jesus. Have you ever been there? Because Jesus' is way are way too improbable. They're way too unreasonable. It costs too much and pays too little. But the truth is this, and Puritan Thomas Watson says this, if your hand is full of pebbles, it cannot receive gold. There is this idea in the Beatitudes where Jesus is saying, if you're holding on to the treasures of the world, you will not be able to receive the true treasure that I offer to you. If you're holding on to the fears of today, if you're holding on uh, to the trials that are in your way, the certainty of reward that is for us, that is mostly future, and yet it is also present. As we see in the Beatitudes as well, it is also present. It is, the kingdom has come. There is reward in the gospel. There is forgiveness of sins. There is joy in the, in the, in the joy of our salvation. There is peace in the presence of God in our life. God works throughout us and in us and throughout our day in numerous ways that we don't even understand. The joy is very present. But the gratification is often delayed. And lastly, here is another big view of the Beatitudes, is that there is a transformed life in following Jesus. You know what kind of Savior that Jesus is? 
He's a surgeon. A surgeon who cuts and who heals. One who does invasive heart surgery. It was about a year ago that my father-in-law went under, he had successful open heart surgery. And the description of the surgeon, of the heart surgeon, uh, would make you think twice about going under and doing this surgery. Maybe you've had a loved one who has done this. Maybe you've had this yourself. Here is what he says, more or less, in in my own words. He says, here's what we're going to do to your father-in-law. We're going to go in. We're going to cut him from navel to collarbone. We're going to open him up like a butterfly. We're going to put... We're going, to put ice ho- we're going to put ice cold water in his heart so that it will stop. And then we're going to take his heart out of his body and put it on a bed of ice. And he won't have a heart in his body. And meanwhile, a machine will be breathing for him and pumping the blood through his body so that he stays alive. His heart won't be beating for about two hours while we work on it. And then after, we're going to put his heart back in his body and we're going to electrocute him so that his heart can beat again, and in six months he'll be better off. He'll be a new man. And a proper response, a reasonable response would be, no thanks. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, he wishes to do surgery on us. And it's easy for us, it's tempting for us to say, no thanks. This life that you've called me to is painful. This life is uncertain. This life is, is risky. We may think of Jesus as a physician, as the Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is a physician. He has come not, to, not for the healthy, but for the sick, and he wishes to be our doctor. And we say, yes, Jesus is my physician, but he is like, he's, a, he's our dermatologist and not our heart surgeon. He's our dermatologist. Lord, would you, would you take care of this blemish in my life? It's, would you take care of this thing that is nagging me and aggravating me? Will you take care of this thing that is itching me? I just want it to go away. And I'm so glad you're in my life so that I don't have to deal with this rash anymore. Can you do something about it? Can you take away this nagging mole? Can you inject something into my face to make me look more beautiful or less weathered by life and its trials? And he says, that's not the kind of doctor I am. There's a blessing that God gives to us, and it's a blessing that comes through his surgery, a blessing through, that comes with his, his scalpel that is meant to heal. You see, a scalpel in the hand of a foolish child can be dangerous and even deadly, but the scalpel in the hand of a skilled physician will bring healing and health. And what God means to do for you and I is to transform our entire life. His agenda for us is not merely spiritual. It's not merely uh, to be happy people. His agenda for us is not for us to just be better off or even to be peaceful and, and, and be in a place of, of, of joy in our life. His agenda for us is to make us like Jesus. And do you realize how invasive that is? It is a coming in and, and destroying all of our idols and cutting out all the, the spiritual cancer in our life and mending us, and healing us, and making us new. There's a blessing that God gives to us that is more important than anything else that you and I could ever pursue. A relationship with Jesus is more transformational than any relationship you and I can ever have. Jesus says, when people hate you, when people revile you, when people persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, he says what? He says, 
Rejoice and be glad. I've been persecuted too. Now we can conclude one of two things about this phrase, right? Jesus, people are hating me. People are persecuting me. People are reviling me. I've been rejected. Pain is coming to my life, Jesus, because I'm just doing what you told me to do. And he says, you should be glad. Well, we should conclude one of two things. One, Jesus is a horrible counselor and is naive to the pain of life and should not be trusted. What kind of person would say that? My life is horrible and everything I hoped would happen is not happening. Happening. You should, you should just, you should be glad right now. Or the second thing is that Jesus, speaking from wisdom, invites us to trust in him, to trust in him who knows the outcome of all things, and he knows what he's talking about. That he knows the reward of suffering for him. And he speaks these things to us as his impending crucifixion is upon him. And for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. That's what we know. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He took the cup of God's wrath. He died for you and me. And he sits enthroned in heaven in glory at the right hand of the Father. And he says, it's worth it. What do you do with your poverty? What do you do with your moral bankruptcy? When you're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, when you want more, what do you do? When you're hurt and persecuted, when people wrong you, what are you inclined to do and to feel? Where do you go? A blessed person goes to Jesus. A pitiful and hopeless man or woman goes deep in herself or himself in an attempt to pull themselves out of the hole that they can never get out of and says, I can do this better. I can get new friends. I can manage this pain. And they never get out. The pitiful and hopeless person says, I can fix this. I can manage this. Where there is a will, there is a way. The Beatitudes, again, are not eight virtues to follow, but one person to follow. The Beatitudes are about following Jesus. What kind of Savior is He? He's a broken Savior, shattered, crushed, betrayed. I'm assure you no one's being murdered in the other room. <laughs> I'm assuming everything's okay. He's betrayed, he's crushed, he's persecuted, he is broken, he is homeless, he is penniless, he is abandoned, he is lonely, he is despised, he is murdered for sins that he did not commit, but ones that you and I committed, and yet resurrected, glorified, and seated at the right hand of God the Father, where he reigns over all of creation in perfect truth and wisdom. And then he says, come and follow me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me and I will give you rest. What do you know about pain, Jesus? He says, I have entered into your nightmares. I've entered into your nightmare. The complete wrath and rejection from God. 
I've entered into your pain. He knows more brokenness than you and I could ever imagine. And he knows it because he entered into it for your sake and for mine. And he still says, with all knowledge and understanding, follow me. This is the way. I am the life. I am the way. I am the truth. And the result of following him is a transformed life. And a life that's not just changed in pieces. Do you see that? It's not just managing sin and getting better at certain areas of your life. It is becoming more like Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. Where we bless when we are cursed. Where there is chaos we can speak peace into. We become peacemakers and blessers when we are persecuted. If you want to be of any use to God. If you want to be of any blessing to anyone else, you must first come empty, emptying yourself of your claim to know how to think or how to go, and you need to follow Jesus. So let me ask you, are, are you a blessed person? Are you a person that deserves to be congratulated? What have you been seeking in your life to desire congratulations? Are it, are it, is it the things that Jesus says we ought to be blessed for. Are you blessed? Let's pursue these things. Let's pray.